turn to the book of Jude. Um, notice I didn't say a chapter. There's no chapter divisions in Jude. <laughs> and so grab your Bibles, turn back to those little tiny books back there. Um, the book of Jude. And this morning, I kind of want to confess to you something that you probably already know, and maybe you're experiencing the same the same thing. But across our nation, there's a, a bit of a, a weariness, right? A, a kind of a tiredness, almost a I'm just done kind of feeling with a lot of things across our nation because um, we're living in a time of such contention and such division that everything seems to be an argument and everything seems to be a fight and um, everything seems to be just kind of more taxing on us emotionally and a lot of people right now don't have the mental emotional kind of bandwidth to deal with any more kind of contention and so what sometimes happens in the church at least is that we stop talking about the things that we find to be most significant and most important because we're just kind of wore out and you ever get to the point where you're just like I know I should say something but I'm just I'm over it right and there just seems to be this kind of thing going on in the church. Well, in the middle of that, there's something that um, ha- kind of happens with people that, that, are, that are spiritual, people that are following Jesus, um, that's kind of tucked in, that's always been. It's always been a struggle for Christians. We see this with some of our Bible characters. We see it with John the Baptist. Um, we, we see it um, with, with Peter. We see it um, with Thomas. And that is the question of doubt, right? One time after John the Baptist was arrested for doing the right thing, he actually sent word to Jesus saying, are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we look for another? <laughs> and this was after he baptized Jesus, saw the dove come down, land on Jesus, and the voice from heaven. I mean, like he saw all the things that you and I would say, well, if I saw that, I would have no problem with faith. I would have no problem with doubt. I mean, the dove literally landing on Jesus and the voice from the sky coming and saying, hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Like you, you like heard it. But like so many of us, things happen in our experience with Jesus that we didn't expect, we didn't ask for, that we don't see as part of the plan. And so then we, even no matter how miraculous God has worked in your life, sometimes you find yourself in a place with God where you're like, mm, have, am I correct? Am I right? Am I, should I like keep kind of going? Now place that, if you're having that experience where you're like, I don't know. I wonder if the Bible is like true. I wonder if my relationship with God really is valid. I wonder, you know, and, and that's you, but then you're living in a kind of cultural malaise of, I don't want to argue. I don't want to disagree. I don't want to contend. And so in a culture where people are tired, where people are kind of just done being the, everything being contentious, they're more quiet more keeping their opinions to themselves, less likely to speak out. But yet there you are needing someone to come alongside you and help you with your doubt. And so now I'm looking at our culture as a pastor and I'm looking across the church landscape and I see Christians being tired. Rightfully so, understandably so, Christians are tired. Emotionally tired, mentally tired, just 
almost to the point where you say, you know what, if that's what you're going to believe, I can't stop you. And all these people with questions, with doubts, are left alone. They're left without anybody to answer their questions. <laughs> They're left without anybody to challenge their, their beliefs. And as Jesus told his, the disciple of John that came to him, Jesus looked at this disciple. He said, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. I'm too tired. I can't, I don't, no, I can't anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. Go, go tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. But see, all over the church today, we have a lot of people that have seen and heard a lot of wonderful things. God has taught you wonderful lessons, shown you many, many things in your life, but yet you're tired and Jesus is coming to you and saying, hey, would you approach this person that's struggling with doubt? Or would you go tell them what you've seen and heard? And you're like, ah, oh, I'm tired. I'm tired. Especially some of you might be tired dealing with this kind of notion of talking about the gospel um, almost defending your faith, giving reasons for why you believe, especially when it comes to some of the details in the scriptures. Some of those things in the Bible that sound kind of crazy, kind of nutty, kind of some of those things that you're like, I can't believe they actually wrote that in there, those kind of things. Because we know that some people that are struggling with their faith today, the source of their struggle is their own Bible reading. And I know that might sound like a little bit of a shock to you, but some people, as they approach faith and they begin their journey with Jesus and they start reading the Bible, they come across a lot of things in the Bible that you'd be like, what? Wait a minute, I can't believe that. I can't, I can't subscribe to that. I can't follow that. I can't do that. And then they'll begin to set the Bible aside because they're reading things in the Bible that they don't quite grasp. Or maybe because of the accessibility of Christian teaching today, maybe they're up late at night because they can't sleep because they're overwhelmed by things going on in their life and they're flipping through their phone and they're scrolling or they're around messing around with YouTube or they're Googling certain things and they come across some pretty wacky statements about the Bible. And so they think, wait a minute, I, I'm reading the Bible and getting more confused as I go. And then I listen to so-called preachers or teachers, and that seems even more nutty, and so I'm getting even more lost. And so, like, what do I do? And so there's people, and you may be one of them this morning, that you're looking at going, the more I read the Scriptures and the more I listen to preachers, the more confused I get, but I'm living in a culture that's just tired and that won't contend with me and is just leaving me, leaving me to my own devices, and I need a Christian to step up. I need a Christian that find it within themselves that... Maybe a fight for me would be worth it. Maybe a fight for my own soul and my own mind and my own life would be worth it. And so today I want to talk to you from the book of Jude. I want to talk to you about this one overall thought. Contending for the faith is worth the fight for the sake of those who struggle with doubt. If you've ever struggled with doubt and you've come out of that season and you're out of place now where your, your feet are firmly planted on the foundation of Scripture and you're doing well, you're probably very thankful for somebody that found it worth it, that found you worth it, that found your struggle important enough to embrace your struggle even though maybe they were limited in their margin. Maybe they were tired. Maybe they had a lot of things going on in their own life. Maybe they had some, a lot of other personal struggles. But they found that you, in your doubt, were worth fighting for. And you felt valued and you felt loved and you felt cared for and you felt cherished and you felt important. 
And you felt important to people and you felt important to God. And that sense of value allowed you to push through and to seek answers and to wrestle with the scriptures and to wrestle with theological things that you find difficult to apply because somebody told you that you're worth it and somebody told you that you're worth their time and energy. And so then you started to believe a little bit more in yourself. And so you then pushed forward and you pushed through your doubt and you found real answers and you found real solutions and you were able to grow. So I want to talk to you about in this place where you might be getting tired of arguing and you might be sitting there thinking, I'm just going to draw back. I'm not going to really comment on that. <laughs> yeah, that's a mistruth. That, that's, a, that's a lie. That's a false teaching. But I don't, I don't have any more in me. I want to encourage you today to get alone with God and ask yourself a question. Is the person making the false statement about Jesus in the Bible, is that person worth your time and effort? That person. I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. I know you're over it. <laughs> but is that person who's sitting there struggling with doubt, are they worth it? To kind of get our minds around what Jude is talking about here, let's go to the beginning of his letter. Because in the beginning of his letter, he kind of gives us the makeup of the Christian church. Now you guys know on Thursdays we open the gym, we play pickleball, and, and we have some fun out there. And then one time I was giving this little devotion about halfway through, and I, I mentioned to the group, I just said, those of you that belong to the church. I made that phrase. It's kind of a, a, a funny phrase today, right? Because no one likes to say, I belong to a church. I belong to myself because we're independent. And those, <laughs> but that's kind of an older phrase. You know, you belong. If you're a member of a church, you kind of belong to that church. There used to be those shirts, you know, property of, and then whatever thing you're, you're dealing with. And so we, we would do that. And I, I made that comment in, in the devotional time. And, and somebody that, that doesn't attend a church, I don't really know their, their spiritual background too much other than maybe they're, they're, they have reason to not believe right now and they're struggling with some things, right? Um, they asked me a question in front of everyone there. They said, well, what's that? What's, who, who's the church? <laughs> and I said, oh, great question. The church is anyone that's following Jesus, right? That has believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, the church. That's the church. Well, Jude gives us another kind of handle, another way to answer that question, who is the church? Notice verse 1, reading along in your Bibles with me, the first two verses. He says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So that's how he defines the church. He defines the church with these three kind of terms. He says, well, first of all, those of you that are part of this, those of you that I'm, that I'm writing to, this is a, like an in-house discussion, is what he's saying. This isn't an evangelistic message. This isn't necessarily the people who don't believe. This is an in-house to the church. Let's gather the church and let's write them a letter. Well, who is the church? Well, first of all, he says, those that are called. Called. Don't you think about that for a second? And I know there's a lot of theological nuances if we want to dig apart that word and do a whole message series on just that word alone. We're not going to do that today. Suffice today for the message that I want to preach to you today that called, I want you to think about you as an individual. God called you. He called you. He reached out to you. He initiated the conversation. Your relationship with God 
is a reality today because God initiated that with you and he communicated with you and he called you unto himself. And as he called you unto himself, he had something in mind. He had something in mind for you that um, you didn't think of, that you didn't dream of. It wasn't part of your goal or, or your life um, ideas, but, but it was his. And it was actually his before you were even thought of, before your parents were even thought of, before the foundation of the, the world, God already knew what he was going to call you to. Because in the sense of calling, you're called out of something. That's what the church means. That word ecclesia means called out one. So he's calling you out of something. He's calling you out of a worldly mindset where you're just focused on you and focused on the flesh and whatever comes natural to you. So he's calling you out of that and he's calling you into something else. Now, in the first century, when you read the gospel accounts and you read Jesus going around and he goes up to the fishermen, and he says, hey, Peter, come follow me. Hey, Andrew, come follow me. Hey, Matthew, come follow me. And he was, what he was doing was it, that looked a lot different than maybe what it would look like today because last I checked, when God called me and he called you, um, I, I didn't like drop my fishing pole and then just walk to Jesus to the next town because that's what it looked like in the gospel account. Come follow me. They literally left mothers, fathers, family members, jobs, Matthew left his tax booth, and he literally started like following the footsteps of Jesus, going from town to town, and Jesus would teach and do miracles, and then Jesus would send them out to teach and do miracles, and that was following Jesus. What, in a literal sense, like a first century Jewish rabbi would do, it was a common throughout. It was almost like, what school do you go to, right? It's like kids go to school this time of year, going back to school. It's like they followed rabbis. It was them going to school. So for them, following Jesus looked like going to school. Looked like being trained as a rabbi to take on their yoke of teachings and then to go out and do those things that, that he did. And they would literally follow Jesus around that part of the world. Well, you and I aren't doing that. When he called me to follow him, I, I, I didn't like start roaming around the Middle East. Start doing that. What we're doing is we're following Jesus more in a sense of what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Just listen. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to these words. He says, For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Huh. So our following Jesus is not walking around the Middle East, town to town. Our following Jesus is allowing that work of God and the Holy Spirit to shape us into the image of Jesus. So you're not walking around town. You are becoming more like him. Oh. That's following Jesus. So when we're thinking about the church, we're thinking about Christians, we are those who are following Jesus with the idea that God is so working in our hearts, making us more like him. That's following Jesus, and that's your calling. Your first calling in life is to be called out of sin and into the image-shaping work of God in your life. That's your calling. But there's also this another word that he uses to describe the church is this word, beloved. Now this word, I'm not going to get all technical with the Greek here, but is what is called a descriptive identifier. Okay, a descriptive identifier. In other words, it's identifying you by describing what you are. So if someone was to look at me, they would say, well, there's a middle-aged white man. Those are the descriptive identifiers. Paul, the middle-aged white man. Okay, cool. All right, Nice. Paul, the guy that stands up on Sundays and talks about the Bible. Okay, cool, that guy. 
But when we're talking about the church, it's, hey, you guys are the beloved ones. Well, who are they? Who are the Christians? Oh, those are the ones that, that are loved by God. God loves those people. Oh, he does, huh? Yeah, so God like calls them, and then he loves them. And calls them because he loves them. And he has this plan for them before they were ever born. Before he ever formed the earth, he kind of knew that he was going to call people and love them. So that's you. You're identified by who loves you. God does. And then a third word, this very interesting word, this word kept. So you're, you're called, and you're loved, and then you're kept. And now this word kept, it's kind of interesting as well because it means to keep guard over, to be protected. Now that's a very interesting word, and it throws a lot of people off when they start thinking about Christianity. Because one of the things is, they start reading their Bibles and they say, oh, I'm a Christian, so I've been called. Okay, that, that's great. God's calling me. I love that. God loves me. Oh, that's wonderful. God's going to protect me. God, God's going to keep me. Oh, this is great. And then you get bad news from your doctor. And you go, um, what happened to the keeping, sir? Then your, 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 your child goes off the deep end and starts doing all kinds of things that you didn't raise them to go do. And you're like, um... Did you forget about the third word here? The keeping. Huh. And that throws us off. And we're like, hold on, I thought he was supposed to keep guard over me. I thought he was supposed to protect me. But these things are happening in my life. And it appears to me that God has failed. Or that he really doesn't love me like he said he did. And he really hasn't called me because this keeping thing looks like a disaster. Ah. You might also want to know that this word means to be kept in charge. Oh, wait a minute. That, see, that, that, maybe that's a little different. To keep in charge. Now, if you think about it for a moment and you look across Christian history and you read your Bible You'll see that Christians get sick, Christians die, Christians raise kids and they rebel and don't do things like they're supposed to, Christians get in car accidents, Christians lose their jobs. So if you start looking at the Bible and you think, okay, we're kept, the Bible says that, but I look across Christianity and the same bad things happen to non-Christians and Christians and the same tragedies strike and the same sicknesses befall them and the same difficulty so maybe that word keep doesn't mean that he's going to keep me from all the challenges of this world and in fact maybe if I read my Bible thoroughly enough I'll notice Jesus telling me that all these things are going to happen to me that he'll tell me ahead of time so what in the wide world does keep mean he's going to keep leading you that he's still in charge of your life you got bad news from the doctor but he's still going to lead you through that your kid's rebelling I know he's going to lead you through that your job. He's going to keep charge over you. He's going to, he's going to lead you through that. See, that's, that's the promise. The promise isn't that he's going to keep all those things out of your life. The, pro, the promise is, is that you are called of God to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, and you are beloved, and he's going to lead you through all of these challenges, trials, and things that cause your doubts. He's going to lead you through those with real answers, with real strength, with real power 
with real, real presence. He's going to be in the mess with you. So in a true sense, you and we, me as the church, we are identified as the church because God has called us unto himself. He has poured his love into our hearts and he is keeping charge of our life, helping us navigate all of the silliness and all of the trials and all of the difficulties and all of the tragedies and he's leading and guiding us and he's keeping us on the path of becoming Christ-likeness. So that's the church. Well, he goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, he takes the church and then he describes them. He says the church as described here in this verses 1 and 2 is to contend with false teachers. So, so you people and, and me, these ones that were, were called, beloved, and were, were kept, we're being charged. He's keeping charge of us. He's still our leader. He's still our, our Lord. He's moving us through this. He says, now what you're supposed to do as these people, you're supposed to contend for the faith. Oh. And contend and fight with false teachers. Oh, well, how do we, how do, we do that? Now, looking at this, you must first ask yourself a question, what's a false teacher? How do, how do we know who they are? Because sometimes people say things that really sound true, but they're not. And you've followed people, and you've listened to people, and you've bought into people's promises, and it turns out to be a disaster. And you wish and you regret that you never, ever believed them, right? We've all been there. We've all trusted someone, believed someone, and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, why did I ever believe that person? Because it's hard. Jesus even says that when you talk about people that believe and don't believe, he says sometimes they look so similar, he just says you, you can't tell. It's like a wheat and a tear. It's like you can't tell until the harvest. You can't tell because it's hard. So the nature of a false teacher, first of all, it says, if, as we read this, it says, Beloved, verse 3, following along in your own Bibles, Beloved, al although... I was very eager to write to you about a, our common salvation, what we have in common, right? This is, I want to write to you about the things that we agree upon. Because isn't that more fun to get around and just talk about all the things that you and I agree about? Oh, that's so much. That's, that's, that's so fun. Paul says, I, I wanted to write to you about that. He said, I found it necessary. <laughs> I wanted to just sit around and talk about all the things we agreed upon. But what we need to do, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, man, I know I'm tired too. You're tired of arguing, I'm tired of arguing, I'm tired of dealing with people that disagree with me because they're always wrong, right? And I just want to get with some good old folks and sit around and have a cup of coffee and talk and about all the things that we agree upon. You agree, I agree, this is great, we just live in this circle where we all agree and if you don't agree with me, get out! We're just going to be here because this is so much easier and then Paul says, oh... Oh, but I found it necessary. I hate that word. This is what we need to do. It's not what we want to do. It's not what's fun. It's not what's energizing. It's not what's exciting or thrilling, but this is the necessary thing. And so these 
False teachers, the nature of a false teacher is they creep in. They'll come off to the side. They'll be conniving and sneaking. Not really up front. They'll be subtle. (laughs) Tell you little truths and things that sound good. They'll take things that sound right and then redefine that and make it to something else. That's what we see all over our culture today. One of the key strategies of communicators today is to take something that you already believe is true, use those words, redefine those words into their own narrative, and then they got you if you're not paying attention. Not paying attention. So they creep in. And they're often unnoticed. They're ungodly. And they've perverted the grace of our Lord Jesus into sensuality. In other words, they've taken Christianity and they've said it's not necessarily you being shaped into the image of Jesus, but it's shaping God into your images. It's using God for your own benefit. It's using the Bible to try to manipulate life to get what you want out of it. And then finally, they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not, they would say, he's not the only one. He's just one. He's just a path. He's just an option. But he's not Lord. Oh, wait a minute you remove that, it's no longer Christianity. It could be Hinduism. Jesus exists, but he's not Lord. Hinduism. It could be the Islamic faith. Jesus was a prophet, but no more. It could be Judaism. Yeah, Jesus existed. He was a Jewish rabbi of his time. He taught with some authority, gained some following, but then he took things too far and we crucified him for it. And then his disciples made up a lie to believe and many believed it, but he was, he was a, a rogue rabbi gone bad. Or you can say that Christianity is, in all its forms, Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and all its different cultural flavors, Protestantism, with all its many, 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 many denominations, and the non-denominational group that is a denomination unto themselves, kind of thing. <laughs> but that commonality, Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. I'm following him. I'm kept by him. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get sick. People are going to do dumb things to me, but Jesus is in charge of my life. He called me. He loves me. He's keeping me. We're going to be okay. He's Lord. It's Christianity. So if that's the nature of the church and that's the nature of a false teacher, then how are we supposed to contend with this? What, what are we supposed to do? Well, when Paul, excuse me, when Jude writes this that we are to contend with these false teachers, there was kind of three options about what he might have meant. Three options. I'm going to pose each one of those three options to you and then submit the one that I think he means. The first option that we have in understanding how we are to contend is that perhaps we are to contend as an athlete, that we're trying to win something. There's a contest to be won. There's a prize to be had. And I'm going to contend for this because I want to win the argument. I want to be right. I want to put you in your place. I want to show everybody around why you're the moron and I'm the educated, brilliant one. I want to win. I want to contend. I want to be argumentative and contentious and rude. I want to win. Could translate that word that way. There was another option that we can contend with someone with a different opinion. That that interpretation of the word contend means I'm going to take my ball and go home. That's how I'm going to contend. I'm going to withdraw from you and seclude myself and be alone. 
Men, we're brilliant at that. That's the way we contend with our wives. Withdraw. Or in our culture today, we'll just call that cancel. I don't agree with you, so I'm going to argue, I'm going to contend with you by canceling you and pulling you out. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm not going to engage with you anymore. I'm not going to let you into my life because I'm contending with you, so I'm going to cancel you. So I can try to win the argument, and I can contend as an athlete to win the prize. I can contend with you in such a way as to just ignore you and cut you off and isolate you and remove you from my life. That's option number two. We see, all, we see both those options taking place today in our culture, and we're, we're, we're tempted, and I've got to be honest with you, that number two sounds really good to me. Just, it fits me. It fits me to just say, you know, if you want to be an idiot, go be one somewhere else. Fine with me. Don't mess up my thing. I'm tired of trying to tell you I've told you a hundred different ways. You won't listen. Just go away. I'm, I'm tempted to be like that. And sometimes, sometimes I am. Sometimes I, I'm that way. And then there's this third way to contend, which <laughs> means to contend about a thing earnestly as a combatant. I'm going to engage in this to conquer it, to get rid of the idea, not the person. To get rid of the lie, not the person who believes the lie. And I'm going to do so earnestly with my whole heart in an honest, upfront, godly manner. I'm not going to just try to win and conquer you and make you look like a fool. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to contend with you by ignoring you and cutting you off and canceling you. But we're going to step in and say, you know what? You are valuable enough for me to contend with this idea that you have earnestly with intent to help you. And I'm not going to go away and I'm not going to give up. We're going to contend. See, and that that is how the church is to contend. But But we're tired and we're living in a culture where everything is an argument and everything is a thing can't even tell good jokes anymore. I'm, those probably aren't good jokes anyway, but I have a bad sense of humor, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, sometimes I laugh at things that are inappropriate. Sorry, I'm a work in progress. Um, do not talk to my sons about that. Kind of keep those from my daughter, but you know. okay, enough of that. So how are we supposed to engage in this third one that I think Jude really meant? last portion if you skip down several verses to verse 17 through 23 in the book of Jude you'll notice that he gives us three steps to correctly or excuse me to correct the corruption of faith okay he gives us three of those let's read that following along in your Bibles but you must remember beloved the predictions of the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ They said to you, in these last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, awaiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads you into eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now I'm going to simplify these to three basic points and then we'll quit. Tells us first of all in verses 17 through 19 to remember the teachings of the apostles. So among all the teachings of all the pastors that you could hear, my big fat mouth and other big fat mouths, when, it, when we say stuff to you, when we're preaching to you, when you're thinking through the answers that we give you, you have an obligation to yourself and to God to check what I tell you and anybody else with the teachings of the apostles. You go back to your New Testament. Let's see if what that loudmouth preacher is saying up there. And let's look and remember what the apostles said. Number two, in verse 20 through 21, develop, the spirit, uh, develop spiritual self-discipline. Hey, I know I'm your pastor, but you, you, I can't live your life. I can't follow you around to make sure you always do the right thing. And that's impossible for me to do because I don't always do the right thing. So if you're depending on me, you're only going to get so far. I can help you some, but you're going to have to grow up and take responsibility for your own spiritual development. I can't go knock on your door every Sunday morning and drag you to church. Can't do it. Can't do it. I can't take you and shove the Bible in your face and say, read this now and do what it says. Even though sometimes I'm tempted to grab you by the back of the neck and put your face to the Bible and say, would you stop looking at anything else but this, please? And would you just do it? For the love of Christ and everything holy, please just do this. Stop with the of nonsense and do this. Maybe that's not compassionate, but that's like, and some of you are stronger than me and you'll punch me if I grab you by the neck. So I want to do that to you. But develop some spiritual self-discipline. You've got to take some responsibility for your life. My mentor has taught me and continues to remind me that I can't care more about your life than you do. I can't work harder at your life than you do. I'm not always available for you. I'm not always there. I don't always pick up the phone. You have to learn to stand on your own two feet and grow up, and we all do. And then this last thing is act out of concern for those who doubt. Because I know people are tired, but let's face it, every single one of us get into positions where we're like John the Baptist. Is this really, <laughs> is this really you? I mean, come on. And we need someone to come alongside us and remind us of what we've seen and heard. So the challenge then becomes to do this. Refuse to be passive. That's what you and I, as what Jude is telling us to do here. I know we're tired and I know we're exhausted and I know we live amongst all this kind of troubling things. But refuse to be passive. And finally, as the congregation, I pray that we embrace the doubter to clear up the doubt. But if you're struggling today, you're struggling to believe in Jesus, I pray that you feel loved by your church. That you and I have a, a, a relationship and a community that when any one of us or family is struggling with doubt, that we could raise our hand and say, um, somebody please help. Because <laughs> I belong to this community of faith called The Retreat, and I'm struggling with some stuff that I read in the Bible, and I'm struggling with some stuff in my home, and I'm struggling with stuff in the world, and I have seeds of doubt creeping up in me, and I need my community enough to love me enough to care about me and let me ask these questions and, and, and let me do this kind of work and let me take responsibility for myself. I need to do it in a 
context of a community. And I think that that would make for a very healthy church and very healthy relationships.